This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be studying the first 11 verses of that chapter today. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd be happy to get you a Bible in your hand. And over the fa- past few months, we've been going through the book of Colossians as a church. And here, as we come to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. This letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's really all about one thing. It's about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And Paul has been making this point over and over again, that Christ is enough. That whatever we go through in life, that we can say that we have Christ, and in Him, that is enough. That Christ is enough for us. And so in chapter 2, we saw how false teachers had come into the Colossian church. And they had told them that Jesus was nice, but they needed to add some other things to him. And now here, as Paul begins chapter 3, he's going to show us that the presence of Christ in us doesn't just change how we live, but it fundamentally changes who we are. We don't need to add anything to Christ. Rather, being raised with Christ completely changes our identity. Showing us that Jesus is enough to build our identity on him. So let's read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray that God would add to the reading of his word. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which is living and active, Lord God. We thank you for the fact that as we come to study your word now, Lord God, that we don't do so alone, but we do so empowered by your spirit, God. So I pray now as I seek to preach this message, Lord God, I pray that you would empower me, Lord God. I pray that that the words that I say would not be my words, but they would come from you, Lord God. I pray that anything that is of me, that you would remove that, and that as we study this passage, Lord God, that our awareness of who you are 
and as a result of who we are in you, would grow because of it, Lord God. We pray that you would bless us through the preaching of your word, and that you would make us more aware of who you are as we leave this place today, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I recently heard a story, and I'm not exactly sure the origin of this story, but it's a good little story, so I thought I would would share it with you. It goes something like this. There was once a scorpion and a frog who were sitting near each other on a bank of a river. And the scorpion asked the frog if the frog would give him a ride across the river. Um, Obviously, scorpions can't swim, and so he needed the frog's help to get across the river. And the frog, though, wasn't an idiot. He, He looked at the scorpion and said, all right, I know that you need to get across the river, but I also know that scorpions like to kill frogs. So why would I take you across the river? Um, and in response to that, the scorpion then says, well, I, I get that. Under normal circumstances, yeah, I probably would n- love nothing more than to kill you right now. But I need to get to the other side of the river. And so because I need to get to the other side of the river, you can trust me that I'm not going to hurt you. You're my only way to get across the other side of the river. Why would I hurt the thing that's going to get me there? And then he, he says as well, if I were to kill you going across the river, we're both going to die. I'm, I'm motivated to not do that. Why would, why would I do that? And so the frog in response looks at him and says, okay, that makes sense. I, I'll, I'll be a nice guy. I'll do you a favor this time and I'll take you across the river. Well, they get in the water and things are going swimmingly. And then they get about halfway across the river and the scorpion stings the frog. And as the frog is dying, he looks back at the scorpion He says, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion looks at him in response and says, sorry, you are a frog and I am a scorpion. I couldn't resist the urge. It's in my nature. Even when it was completely self-destructive, the scorpion couldn't resist the urge to sting the frog. And I think so often the same can be true of us. Even when we know something is ultimately going to hurt us and when we can be drawn in by sin because of our fallen nature, we, we continue to do it even though we know that it's going to destroy us. We may even at times feel like this reality is inevitable. That we might have the thought that I'm a sinner. I might as well just resign myself to this or that sin. But as we study the passage this morning, By God's grace, I think we're going to find that as Christians, we've actually been given a new identity. And as a result of this new identity, while on this side of heaven we will never be sinless, by God's grace, we should grow in our desire to sin less. Since Christ is no longer in the grave, but is now seated at the right hand of the Father, we no longer have to be enslaved to scorpion-like urges and desires to sin. So the big idea in our text this morning is this. It is being raised with Christ makes us new people. Being raised with Christ makes us new people. The title of this morning's sermon is Raised with Christ. And we're going to see just two points this morning. First, living in our heavenly identity. And then second, killing our old earthly desires. So let's look at point number one together, living in our heavenly identity. Paul begins verse one here by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. 
Here, he isn't questioning them about whether they've been raised with Christ. No, instead, he's pointing them back to the fact that they have been raised with Christ. We, we know this because in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here Paul is, isn't questioning the validity of their faith, but rather reminding them of the source of it. In baptism, they had gone down into the water, symbolizing being buried with Christ. And then just as Christ was risen from the grave, so also they are risen out of the water, symbolizing our new faith in Christ Jesus. And so, because we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things above. Here in these first few verses, Paul is talking about being raised with Christ. And he isn't just talking about Christ's resurrection, but also Christ's ascension into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God. And as Christians, we rightly focus on the importance of Christ's burial, death, and resurrection. But I think for many of us, the fact that Christ has ascended is more of an afterthought. The, the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of God is not something that we often take time to think about. But what Paul is saying here is this reality that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is significant for us. The reality that Christ is seated on high in heaven isn't just an intellectual reality. No, it changes everything for us. We see in verses 1 and 2 that the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God changes both what we do and how we think. In these two verses, Paul gives us two commands that are meant to flow together. He tells us, to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so he is reminding the Colossians, and by extension, he is reminding us to act like and think like who we are in Christ. That our identity precedes our actions. So often we think the opposite. We live in a culture that tells us that we're a blank slate. We can be whatever we want to be based on how we feel and act. But here, Paul is telling us the opposite. He's saying that as followers of Jesus, we've been given a new heavenly identity which is secure in our union with Christ. And it is this heavenly identity that now defines us and dictates how are we are to live and think? Paul is saying, because of our new identity, we will act and think differently than we once did. So let's look at what it means to seek the things above. We saw last week how the false teachers were making a big deal about experiencing the supernatural. Even so much that they viewed this world itself as evil. They were consumed by, quote-unquote, things above. But here, Paul is showing us what it really means to actually seek the things that are above. 
Namely, that we are united with a heavenly Christ. So it's not about doing crazy things like worshiping angels. Rather, it's about setting our minds on the person and work of Christ. Because he is enough. We don't need to add to Christ. We need to be defined by Christ. Theologian Douglas Moo sums this concept up very helpfully. He says this. He says, Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. We are to make the heavenly status the guideposts for all our thinking and acting. Do you see what he's saying here? He's telling us that because we are united to Christ, we have a new standard of values. The things that used to guide how we live have been replaced by a heavenly identity of desiring to bring honor and glory to Jesus. For example, think of someone who begins to eat more healthy. Um, this is something I've been trying to do a little bit. I'm not, not going to lie to you. I'm not crazy. I'm not doing a lot of healthy eating, but trying to scale back, you know, trim the edges. Um, but as someone who, as someone begins to eat more healthy and stop eating the things that they were eating before, their body begins to react differently to the things that they used to once enjoy. And so what was once was that something that was just delicious, despite being unhealthy, now becomes less enjoyable. That which used to bring satisfaction actually now brings discomfort in a variety of ways. And I think Paul here is saying that, that so it is with our union with Christ. Because we have been united with Christ, our desires begin to change. What we do to get satisfaction in life begins to change. But it doesn't just change what we do. No, he also says that it changes how we think. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. He's telling us that we need to reorient our will. That God loves us too much to only care about our outward actions. He wants us to fully experience our new identity in Christ. And to do so doesn't just result in outward transformation, but it also results in how we think and what we think about. Now, we can read this and think that to set our minds on things above means that we're supposed to just become monks and spend 24-7 just praying and fasting and just completely remove ourselves from the world. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that what we need to do is just read our Bible all day and not do anything else at all. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. See, setting our minds on things above shouldn't lead us to inaction, but rather our actions are motivated by our heavenly identity. Setting our minds on things above shouldn't cause us to withdraw from the world, but rather it should motivate us to a greater love for the world. 
In verse 2, he makes it clear that the things above should be what our lives are oriented around, not the things here on earth. And so, for instance, if this world was all there is, then it would make sense to cancel people when they offend us, to just give up on them and move on. It would make sense to, to work hard at our jobs so that we can have lots of money and we can experience the enjoyment of those things for ourselves. But instead, because our minds are oriented on the things above, namely our union with Jesus, we should look at things differently. We should be willing to work hard through difficult relationships, continuing to pursue unity and resolution with people even when it's difficult. We should be those who love our enemies and as Jesus said, bless those who curse us. Because of our union to Christ, we should be some of the hardest working people in our workplace. So we should work hard. But we don't work hard just for our own gain. No, we work hard to bring glory to Christ. And as we work hard, we should be willing to give generously because our identity is not found in our earthly things, but in our union with the heavenly Christ. And I think even as we think about these categories, it can be so easy for us to drift, can it? Setting our minds on things above takes daily commitment to set and reset our minds. This action requires intentionality. The Christian life is not one that functions on cruise control. Just as forgetting to set your alarm clock in the morning will ruin your day, so also, we need to intentionally be setting out to set our minds on things above. And even as I was preparing this message this, these last couple of weeks, I was thinking about what's this mean for me? First and foremost, in preaching a sermon, I'm preaching to myself. And so how, how is God calling me to respond to this text? And as, as you may know, recently, the last few months, I started working for FedEx as a delivery driver. And I know the last time I preached, I talked about being a barista and how I worked for a coffee shop. But since I was preaching again, I figured I needed to get a new job so I could find another illustration. So, so I changed jobs. But as, as, I'm on the, as, as I'm working for FedEx, I'm working on the road. I'm on the road all day long. And so I have lots of time, more time than I've ever had before to just spend time filling my mind. And so I have lots of time to listen to podcasts and audiobooks. Really, it's about eight hours worth of time every day. And it's, it's been great. It's been, it's been a great experience. I've really enjoyed this new job in a variety of ways. But as I was studying this passage, I was just thinking about how does, how does what Paul's saying here in Colossians 3 inform what my playlists look like when I'm at work? Now, I wasn't listening to anything inherently sinful. I wasn't, um, yeah, I wasn't doing anything uh, wrong necessarily. But but I was using my time to focus on setting my mind, my mind on things that weren't necessarily above. I was using most of my time to set my mind on earthly things. And so what I found was despite all this newfound time that I have on the road, that I was still taking, using most of my time to consume information and neglect the opportunity to have communion with God in prayer and meditation on His Word. And so in response to this text, I've begun to change the way that I think about what it is I listen to when I'm at work. 
I now start my route by spending time with the Lord and just in prayer and reflecting on his word and asking him to help me honor him as I work throughout the day. Now, I don't do this for all eight hours, and I also pray with my eyes open in case anyone's worried. Um, when I'm driving the FedEx truck, I don't have my eyes closed, I promise. But, but I do this at the, at the beginning, right? And, and in doing that, I'm now reorienting my whole day. That when I start my time with the Lord, it reframes how I spend the rest of my time. Now, instead of just being distracted by other things, my mind and heart are filled with Christ. And so even as I do other things, I can actually worship God through the good gifts that he has given us, like an occasional baseball podcast or something of the like. Um, when, I'm, when I'm struggling to move fast, sometimes I'll turn on some classic rock, classic rock radio station and just for some reason that helps me get moving faster. Um, you know, something about We Will Rock You that just gets my feet moving just a little bit faster. But, um, but yeah, this, this passage should impact how we live. Now, I don't know how God's calling you to apply these verses, but I'm sure there are all ways, I'm sure there are ways for all of us that we need to consider how we can stray from living out a heavenly identity. And as we think of that, may we take much hope in verse 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul continues by saying we've died and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. This should be a shocking statement to us. Not only are we someone with a new identity, but the old person that we once were is now dead. We aren't just a better version of ourselves. We are wholly made new in Christ. And since we are in Christ, our heavenly identity is not dependent on our ability to seek the things that are above or to set our minds on the things above. No, it's not dependent on our ability, friends. No, we are dependent on the fact that in Christ we have died to sin. When Christ died, it secured our identity because we died with him. But just as Christ didn't stay dead but emerged from the grave three days later, so he secured our future with him by defeating death and sin on our behalf. And so our hope is not in our efforts. Our hope is that we are united with him once and for all. Past, present, and future. And because we are, because we are in Christ, we are united to him by his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are now under the present and secure protection of God the Father. And he continues in verse 4, and we find that this new identity doesn't just heal our past and protect us from the present, but it also secures our future. Here Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He doesn't say, if Christ appears. No, friends, our future is completely secure. It isn't if, but when. And when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Strong's Concordance gives this description for the word glory here. And I thought it was just a great phrase. So I, sh I want to share it with you. It says, this word glory here means the glorious condition of blessedness. Into which it is appointed and promised 
that true Christians shall enter the out shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. The glorious condition of blessedness. What a phrase. Here Paul is saying that the best, sweetest, most wonderfully pure moments that we can experience here on this earth, they pale in comparison to the blessedness that we will experience with Christ in glory. And that will be our experience forever and ever and ever. It will quite literally be glorious beyond compare. Our joy will be incomprehensible. And in Christ, this is our future. And so here in Colossians, Paul is calling us to live this day in light of that day. To have a heavenly mindset. Christ has changed our past, our present, and our future. And therefore, because this is our new heavenly identity, we are to put to death our old earthly desires. Which leads us to our second point. Killing our old earthly desires. Here Paul contrasts our heavenly identity with what is earthly in us. Our sin. And he he gives us two separate lists of things here that cannot coexist with one who is setting their minds on things above. The first list, he tells us that we are to put to death this list. He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He then continues with a second list of things that we need to put away. He says to put away anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouth. And in verse 9, he adds, and do not lie to one another. Now both of these lists here highlight the fact that our sin breaks down our relationships. The result of sin is relational corruption. And so the first link, or the first list rather, is sexual in nature, which shows us a corruption of our relationships with one another. Now, you may be wondering, covetousness. I've never really thought about that as a sexual sin. But here, the idea of covetousness is wanting something that isn't ours. And Paul points out that all of these are forms of idolatry. At the root, our sexual sin, just like covetousness, is idolatry. It's saying, my desire for this person or experience is more lovely than honoring God with our thoughts, eyes, and actions. And Paul is saying very clearly here, because of our heavenly identity, because of who we are in Christ, we must put these things to death. Likewise, the second list, he tells us to put away these things. This list is focused on sins that are about our feelings and communication with one another. As we've already seen in the text, God doesn't just care about the way we act, but he cares about the way we think and talk. And so this phrase, put away, alludes to the idea of discarding clothing. Just as you would take off dirty clothes at the end of a hard day of work, so we should put off these feelings, of, these feelings and communication that are sinful. Just as you wouldn't then the next day put back on those dirty clothes and reuse them, 
so also our earthly feelings and communication should be replaced by ones that flow out of our heavenly identity. Paul is showing us that our heavenly identity isn't just about us, but rather it changes the way we relate to one another. I often think we can be deceived into thinking that our sin won't hurt anyone else. It's just, it's just me. I might, I might hurt myself, but it's worth it. It's not going to affect other people. And we can often be deceived that that's the reality. And Paul is making it very clear here that that's not true. That when our sin corrupts, it doesn't just affect us, but it affects those around us. And so he's saying, kill and put away such things because they actually destroy our relationships with one another. He says these things are incompatible with a new identity in Christ. And he highlights this fact in verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You see the, the connection here? These kinds of behaviors are ways that we once acted. That before we had been given a heavenly identity in Christ, we may have, we may have done all of these things, but now because we have put on the new self, because we have been given a new identity, and because we are united to Christ, now we, these, these things have no place in us. All of these sins here in verses 5 through 10 lead to a breakdown in relationships with one another. And so Paul is showing us, as I said, that it's not just about us and God, but to be united with Christ leads us to be united in greater ways to one another. Paul is calling for us and longing for us to experience friendships that are deep and thriving instead of superficial and shallow. He's calling us to have friendships where we speak truth and believe the best in one another instead of taking time and spending time to spread malice and slander about one another or operating in relationships out of anger. No, he's saying, no, there's a better way. And because you are in Christ, those things should be put away. Friends, he wants us to have marriages where we can experience true intimacy and joyful friendship because we are wholly committed to one another in fidelity. And to accomplish these things, Paul is calling us to put to death our earthly desires and to put away our improper feelings and communication. And he isn't telling us to just slowly taper off of those things. We'll just wean ourselves off of sin and eventually it'll be gone. No, he's telling us to kill it. And 17th century pastor John Owen, in talking about killing sin, puts it this way. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, to mortify was an old English word for kill. Killing, is, killing sin isn't just a one-time thing. No, friends, as John Owen says here, it takes regular attention and focus. Here at our house here in South Philly, we have a small backyard with a small fire pit and a vegetable garden. 
Um, we call it a yard because we live in South Philly. Anyone who doesn't live in the city would laugh and say that's a small patio. But we live in the city, so we make the best of what little surface area God gives us. And so our kids know it is a yard. But anyway, we, we, last summer in this little yard that we have, we had a huge mosquito problem. And it really made it nearly impossible to enjoy the good gift of our outdoor space. And to deal with mosquitoes, it really takes regular, committed effort to rid the area of such a vile creature. Um, and Paul, Paul here is saying that sin is just like that. How silly would I be if I thought, oh wow, I have a big mosquito problem. Let me go kill four or five mosquitoes and tomorrow, problem solved. No, of course not. To get rid of the mosquitoes, you need to get to the root of the problem. You need to find out where's the source that's causing all these mosquitoes to come from and then kill that source. And even in killing that source, the work still isn't done. No, I, in, in, to keep the mosquitoes out, you would then need to continue to create an atmosphere where, where the mosquitoes aren't going to come back and be able to thrive. And so you have to continue to be proactive and keep killing the mosquitoes. And this summer, we're doing a much better job at that. But here, with sin, sin is similar. It's just like the mosquitoes. We must be wholly committed to putting to death our sin. And not just on the surface level, but we must get to the root of our idolatry and kill it at the source. And then, after killing it at the source, we needed to continue to be proactive and give sin no opportunity to have a foothold in our hearts and minds. So this should be an ongoing and regular rhythm in our lives. As John Owen said, the moment that we stop killing sin, we begin to make ourselves vulnerable to being killed by it. So then how do we kill our sin? How do we do this? We do this by remembering that we are united in Christ. How easy it is for us to slide into a mindset that thinks that we kill sin so that we can have a heavenly identity. But no, Paul is clear here. We kill sin because we have a heavenly identity. We live lives of obedience because of his grace that we have been, because of, by his grace, we have been given a new identity. We don't live in obedience to earn this new identity. Do you see that, that distinction there? Our desire and ability to kill sin comes as a response to God's bountiful grace. By beholding Christ and his beauty so much that sin pales in comparison to the worth and joy that we find in Jesus. This, this concept reminds me of the song in Christ alone. The third verse it goes like this. I'll just read it to you. It's so powerful. It says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. But then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And what does that mean for us, friends? As he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. If you are here this morning, you are a follower of Christ, this should be the cry of our hearts. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. How can we say that? 
We can say that because I am his and he is mine. Because we are united to Christ, we have a heavenly identity. And in that heavenly identity, we find that sin's curse has lost its grip on us. And so that begs the question, how aware are we of our own sin? What are ways that God is calling us to continue to put to death our earthly desires? To stop turning a blind eye to our sin, but rather to acknowledge it and put it to death by clinging to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you aren't yet a follower of Jesus. If you're here and that's you, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that that you would choose to be with us this morning. We want to be, as a church, we want to be a place that is a safe place for people to come and explore and ask questions. And if that's you here this morning, I would just ask you to consider all that you've heard today, that, that there is salvation in Christ and that in Him you can be given a new identity that isn't defined by anything other than Christ. Friends, God is giving us an opportunity today to experience afresh the joy of being raised with Christ. We won't put our sin to death by trying harder. No, we will only experience victory over sin by remembering who we are. That we are united to Christ and that we have been raised with Christ. And in our union with Christ, there is deeper and greater joy than anything this world can offer. And as we bring this sermon to, to a close, Paul sums all of this up. It sums up our heavenly identity in verse 11 when he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Here he addresses, in this last verse, he addresses three different categories of people. He addresses people who identify themselves by their ethnicity. Then he, then he, he addresses people who identify themselves by their religious practices. And lastly, he addresses people who identify themselves by their social status. And he takes all of those differentiations and he throws them out. And he says, because of your heavenly identity, these are no longer how we, are, how we identify ourselves. Rather, our identity is in the fact that Christ is all and in all. Christ church, Christ is enough. We have been raised with Christ. And since we have been raised with Christ, we are not a church that is united based on our ethnicity. No, we are not a church that is here as a church that is united based on our political affiliations. We're not a church that is united based on our social status. No, we are a church that is solely united in Christ. And he is enough for us. Despite all of our perceived differences, and there are many, but because we have been united in Christ, we are united to one another. And so we need to put to death the sin that would disrupt our relationships and live in our heavenly identity as a testimony to God's presence here in our lives. For we have been raised with Christ.
Let's pray.